Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Unfinished Tales class. So tonight, we are talking about the quest of Erebor. This, of course, is a, <clears throat> a kind of exciting topic for me. This is something I've been thinking about quite a bit uh, lately. I know, this, of course, uh, there's some, some obvious reasons why uh, the quest of Erebor has been uh, uh, <clears throat> a topic of conversation quite a bit uh, lately. One thing I wanted to say at the very beginning, though, it is my goal not to talk about the Hobbit films tonight. Um, there are going to be, I'm going to make a wild prediction here, and predict that there are going to be many of you who will have lots of questions related to the films in association with our discussion um, of, um, of, of, the, uh, of the Quest of Erebor. But I'm going to try to resist doing that. Kate says there's a film. Um, yeah, so uh, basically for two reasons. One, because we do have Riddles in the Dark to do that, but also because I want to make sure that we focus on our discussion of the text first, and if we get through all that I want to say just about this text before we even consider the influence that this text may have had on other things, then uh, I, I, you know, I, it, it'll be a miracle. So <clears throat> I do want to make sure to do that. However, if anybody does have questions that they want to talk about, and you know, I, I, I would be willing to work that into the uh, our last bonus session uh, if we have a chance to, so... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm totally averse to talking about it, um, but as I say, I, I, I don't, I, from the beginning, I don't want you to think that I have uh, 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 definite plans to do that, though I think there will be many places where you'll see sort of the relevance uh, of that discussion. Now, first, though, uh, one, um, one small matter before uh, we... Uh, before we start, um, I, I, I want to make an announcement. I have to do a time change next week. Next week, my family is uh, traveling, so I'm going to be doing <clears throat> our uh, class uh, next week from uh, on the road, and uh, I can't do it on our normal day. That's going to turn out to be impossible. So we're going to do it at the normal time, but we're going to have to switch to Friday instead of Tuesday. Uh, so we will have, uh, uh, sadly, like a full 10-day gap between tonight and our next class uh, when we do the Hunt for the Ring. But, um, you know, my, the only compensation I can offer is that you only have like a, a four-day gap between that class and the next one. Um, so, uh, so yes, Friday, February uh, 28th, um, that's, what, that's when we're going to do. Um, so... Um, just wanted to make sure to announce that I'll have I've already changed the uh, time on the session. So those of you who are signed up in advance for the next session will probably already have received an email notification about that. Um, nothing is different. You can you still use the same link um, as is posted on the page. We'll be posting the link. Um, nothing will be different, and it will give you the correct time on there. But anyway, I just wanted to let you know that we are changing the day. Um, so. <coughs> Anyway, yes, and we do have a Riddles in the Dark episode this Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, so that's also something else that can help to sort of tide you over between now and the, the long, long gap before the next Unfinished Tales class. Now, okay, moving on, because as I say, I've got a heck of a lot of stuff I want to cover. I have a, a very large number of slides tonight, and we'll see how many I can get through. Um, the Quest of Erebor. First, a little review of the textual history. Uh, this uh, started off, of course, as Christopher Tolkien explains, uh, as part of Appendix A, as the final part of Appendix A, the end of the section on Durin's Folk. Um, you will remember, if you, uh, you know, have you've read Appendix A at all recently, um, that... Um, 
<clears throat> you will you will remember that the um, uh, uh, the appendices well the appendices were very long and uh, Tolkien had a problem getting everything together in time. You'll remember that at the end of Appendix A, um, we get a very, very short version of the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo and Gimli um, that happens in Minas Tirith after the fact. Um, just like primarily that one paragraph where Gandalf talks about how you know, it was a chance meeting and think of everything that might have been different. You know, As we remember what happened here in, in the South, let's not forget the North. This is when they've heard about the death of, uh, of, of, of Dan and Brand and Dale um, and all that stuff. So that's pretty much the only part of this story that ended up making it into the appendix. Um, he meant it to go in. This was part of the story. Um, uh, Scott says, did he just not write it in time? No, it was written in time. It was just too long. I mean, as it was, he went back and forth and wrestled uh, with the, uh, not literally, I think, um, with the publishers about the appendices. Um, and we talked about this some when we uh, when we discussed the appendices uh, back in the Return of the King class. Um, that, you know, he, he, he was kind of divided himself what to put in and how much to put in, and he kept dithering back and forth, and his publishers were tearing their hair out, because by this time, the Fellowship of the Ring had, had, had been published and had gone over really well, and the Two Towers had been published, and everyone's waiting for the return of the king. So remember, put yourself in the way. I know some of you, uh, possibly some of you who are here with me tonight, were there. We're, we're in the crowd of people who uh, read the Lord of the Rings as it came out. Um, I've heard, uh, I've, you know, I've gotten a, a, a bunch of messages from people who sort of tell me their own stories about the torture of <clears throat> getting to... Remember the end of the Two Towers? Sam dashing himself against the wall uh, in pursuit of the orcs carrying off Frodo and the final sentence, Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. Now, wait for like a year and a half for the return of the king to come out. And it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And there were, you know, like riots and stuff. Uh, not literally. But anyway, there are lots of people who are really uh, waiting for the return of the king to come out. And it kept getting delayed because of the appendices. Um, and he kept going back and forth. And finally, they, they, the, the pressure from Tolkien, um, to Tolkien, from the publishers, was to cut it down, to cut it down, to cut it down, because he just wanted to include all this stuff, and they said it's really not practical. That is why um, the quest of the quest of Erebor ended up getting cut, because it was it was it was it was just too long. Um, it is also, again, according to Christopher Tolkien, um, part of the reason why, at least that's. Christopher Tolkien's theory about it. It's part of the reason why we get the different versions of it, because we see his first um, his first move was to try to compress it. Oh, it's too long? Okay, here's a shorter version, and then that had to get cut too. Um, so, uh, anyway, but just a quick review then of the drafts, because I know that the textual situation in the Quest of Erebor uh, is kind of confusing. These aren't fragments. Um, that's the first thing I want to emphasize. They're not fragments, they're drafts. And you should think about them as drafts. You should think of them as, as, as separate versions. Um, and there are, in total, four drafts of the Quest of Erebor. The first draft didn't exist, that is, Christopher Tolkien hadn't found it and pieced it together at the time that he published Unfinished Tales. So he talks about what he calls the A-text, what he believed to be the first version, turned out not to be. Um, turned out not to be the first version of the text. There was an earlier version, which he later sort of discovered and pieced together from other fragments and things. That version, if you're interested in reading some of the, some of, you know, the, the initial stuff, 
the very first draft st- uh, material of the Quest of Erebor. You can find it in The Peoples of Middle-Earth, um, Volume 12 of the History of Middle-Earth, um, when Christopher Tolkien gives us finally gives us the draft history of the appendices. Um, so you can see it there. B- by that time, he has discovered... Remember, the publication history in Christopher Tolkien's world, Unfinished Tales, came out after the Silmarillion, but before the beginning of the History of Middle-Earth series. He, he embarked on book one of the 12-book History of Middle-Earth series after Unfinished Tales had come out. So in Christopher Tolkien's editorial world, this, com- this comes significantly earlier, especially than the later uh, volumes in the History of Middle-Earth series. So, okay, so the very first draft of, of The Quest of Erebor um, was a manuscript, and it's uh, the selections from it are given by Christopher Tolkien in the Peoples of Middle Earth. We're not going to talk about that tonight. It's well beyond the scope of our discussion in Unfinished Tales, um, and the the bits that he gives um, in uh, in the Peoples of Middle Earth. It's kind of interesting to see some of the elements that are there all the way through from the beginning, even some of the lines that are there from the beginning all the way through. Um, but I don't find it enormously, um, enormously different. I don't, f- you know, I, I myself don't find the original draft like a total revelation or anything. Remember that these are all written pretty close together. We're not talking about him coming back and revisiting something he wrote ten years before. All of these drafts were written within, like, you know, a few months of each other, probably. Um, so, it's not like we're looking at totally different phases of Tolkien's contemplation of these ideas. Um, so, anyways, the very first draft of the, of the Quest of Erebor is in the peoples of Middle-earth. The second draft is what, in Unfinished Tales, Christopher Tolkien calls the A-text. It's a manuscript, it's a sloppy manuscript, sloppy in that it's got lots of emendations and corrections all over it, um, and Christopher Tolkien doesn't quote from it, because he made, apparently based on the, a, ma- the A-text manuscript, Tolkien typed a version um, of the text to make it a cleaner version than the manuscript A-text, as Christopher calls it. And that is what Christopher calls the B-text. So the B-text is, is the first typescript. It's a typescript made from the A-text. Um, the B-text is what Christopher Tolkien gives selections from in the appendix to the Quest of Erebor uh, in, in Unfinished Tales. So the bits that are in the appendix, that's, that's the B-text. This, this is the most full version of the Quest of Erebor. It's the longest version of the Quest of Erebor. Um, it seems to be the the sort of the the it's not the latest but it's the fullest idea and it's the third draft of as i said then the fourth draft is what christopher tolkien then calls the c text um that's the main text in unfinished tale so when you start the quest of erebor chapter it's the c text that you're reading christopher tolkien chooses um to give that text as the primary text rather than the b text I presume it isn't really explained, but I presume because it's the latest, and so you know we're we're getting sort of the latest final version of the story uh, in Tolkien's mind. Um, he he also implies, though, as I just mentioned, that the reason Tolkien wrote that version after he wrote the B version is that he was trying to compress it to see if some version of the story could still be squeezed in to the appendices and still found out no. Um, so actually, it seems to me kind of. Um, if you want to try to decide, and Christopher Tolkien apparently is in the position to try to make this decision when he chooses which version of the text to make as the primary text in this chapter, he has to decide which of these versions does he want to be sort of the representative version. This is sort of, uh, you know, Tolkien's 
real intention, his sort of, his sort of primary vision of the of the of the story. Christopher ends up choosing the C text. Um, I think arguments can be made in the other direction. I think arguments can easily be made that the B text is really sort of Tolkien. He does make some changes, which are interesting to look at, and we're going to look at some of these tonight, um, in his revision from the B-text to the C-text. Um, but the B-text seems to me to be really sort of, the, as I said, it's it's the fullest, um, and a lot of the change from the B to the C-text seems to be simply condensation, simply let's just let's just make it shorter, or at least that seems to be the primary thing. Now, um, as Sandra has Sandra Hall has just brought up, and I wasn't going to forget to say, if you are interested in reading the entirety of the B-text, and not just the clipped bits that Christopher Tolkien gives us in the appendix to the Quest of Erebor chapter, you can find it in The Annotated Hobbit by Doug Anderson. In the appendix of The Annotated Hobbit, um, Doug Anderson publishes for the first time the entire unabridged B-text of the Quest of Erebor. So if you want to read that entire version from one end to the next, and it's very interesting, I encourage you to look in the Annotated Hobbit. There are going to be several times tonight when I'm going to quote from that. I, I, I have a few passages from bits of the B-text that are published in the Annotated Hobbit that did not make it into the that we're not in the selections that Christopher Tolkien puts in the appendix uh, to um, uh, to the Quest of Erebor chapter. So uh, I hope that won't throw people too much. There are only a few of those. Um, but again, what I'm wanting to do in several places is to be comparing the what we can really think of is that, you know, there are four drafts, but they're really two primary texts, the B text and the C text. The B being the longer, earlier one, and the C being the more condensed, later text. Um, and I'm going to want to be look, sort of comparing those to sort of see when he makes changes which are not simply condensation, when he makes changes which actually are substantive alterations of the story, what direction is it going? What kind of changes can we see? What kind of reconsiderations can we see happening there? Now, um, so that's uh, that's the story of the text. Is that it's kind of complicated. Um, I would encourage you to try, if you can, to keep them separate. I'm going to be trying to do this as we talk about them tonight because I think it's more interesting rather than trying in your head to come up with a kind of composite text for you know the B text and the C text. Um, you know, one full kind of combined story. Rather to think of them, think of them as think of them as different drafts. Think of them as slightly very similar but slightly different stories. Um, because I think if we take each one of them on its own ground and think about what that story is doing, we can begin to see some interesting things emerging about the the way that the story itself is growing. So there's each individual story, and then there's kind of the whole meta story, kind of like we were doing with Galadriel when we were looking at the different versions of the Galadriel story as Tolkien developed that over time. So we're going to do a little bit of that here tonight as well. So the big question to sort of start with with the quest of Erebor, kind of like the question we asked last time about Isildur and Eorl, is what's going on here? What What is this what is this story doing exactly? What what precisely are we reading, and why does it exist? Um, and I think it's pretty clear that the primary effect of the quest of Erebor is to sort of smooth the connection between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, this is something that I've talked about a lot for various reasons uh, that may or may not be related to films um, uh, lately about the relationship between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And what is pretty clear is that The Hobbit is 
pretty separate from The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit as written, The Hobbit as published, has a lot of discontinuities with the story of The Lord of the Rings, the, those characters as they're presented in The Lord of the Rings, and it is quite independent from much of the overall historical narrative that Tolkien worked into The Lord of the Rings and its background story. And nowhere are those breaks more significant. Nowhere is that um, is the sort of unfitness of those two stories more apparent than in chapter one, in the beginning concept, conceptions of the story. The Hobbit begins. It's it is it, you know the the genre as I've you know said before in other contexts. I the, the published Hobbit seems to me primarily um, in the genre of fairy tale. Um, it is. It starts off like a fairy tale adventure, um, and there are a lot of explanations not given at the beginning of the Hobbit because they're not needed in the context of that initial story. Um, you know the questions that arise, beginning with the question literally that Gimli asks at the beginning of the Quest of Erebor account, especially in the B text. What was Gandalf thinking? Why Bilbo? Right? How did how did Gandalf end up choosing Bilbo? Why was he? Why did he connect them? How was Thorin's company assembled, and what was it setting out to do? Thorin and his companions are a done deal when we meet them. Right? They come in as a unit already. Who are they? Where are they from? Why have these thirteen and these thirteen only come together? And what exactly are they planning to do? That's not actually really a question that's plainly answered in chapter one of The Hobbit. Indeed, it's not a question that's been plainly answered by the time we get to like chapter twelve of The Hobbit. In fact, um, but uh, but but anyway. I, my my argument again when I when I say that it's like a fairy tale story, I'm not saying that I think this is a weakness of the Hobbit. The published Hobbit doesn't need um, the. Oh, I'm sorry, Neil. Uh, just a quick a quick note. Yeah, sorry, Neil. Neil says he doesn't see the the B text in uh, his version of the annotated Hobbit. No, it's not in the '88 uh, version. Sorry, this is the revised and expanded edition. I should have said. I'm, I apologize, Neil. In the revised and exta- expanded second edition of the annotated Hobbit, you can find the Quest of Erebor text. My my apologies there, um, but thank you for bringing that to my attention. Anyways, okay. As I said, I don't think the published Hobbit needs explanations to these stories. If you read fairy tales, this is the kind of thing that happens. You know, when you you have our protagonist who has, you know, adventure suddenly happens. They go into the woods and something happens and we don't need a whole big backstory. We don't need a whole explanation for why, um, you know, when you're, when you go into the woods with Hansel and Gretel and you meet the Wicked Witch, we don't need a story. We don't need an explanation. Why is the witch there? Why did she build her house there precisely? And why is she, you know, like, what, does she, um, you know, does she, does she eat only children? Is it's like, what exactly is her routine? I mean, the backstory of the witch, we don't need it, right? That's not how those stories work. Similarly, you know, Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, we don't need an explanation of Thorin and company. He tells us where they're going. He tells us the story of the fall of the Lonely Mountain and the attack of the dragon. We hear about their love for treasure, and we know what is motivating them to go on a treasure hunt. Um, But 
the further backstory. Where are you from? What are the political? Uh, uh, what is your immediate political history? Do you have other kin? And if so, why didn't they come? Um, you know, where does this fit in with the other kingdoms of the world? This, this is, this is these. There's not the kinds of questions that get answered in the kind of story that we're reading uh, in. The Hobbit in The Lord of the Rings, however, those are very much questions that get answered. And what's more, now that that is not only... It's an earlier chapter from The Lord of the Rings, but it's quite a late chapter in the entire history of Middle-earth as it's been unfolded, especially in the appendices when we're getting the tale of years and everything. Um, those, those, those not only should be explained, but could be explained, really kind of need to be explained in the context of everybody else um, who is uh, who's kind of involved. So, okay, we need answers to those questions, and, to- and Tolkien seems to recognize that questions like that need to be answered now. The Quest of Erebor um, uh, uh, answers a bunch of these questions. How does Gandalf end up assembling them together? Gandalf, again, another character who needs no explanation. When he comes in and he's the story maker, he says, I'm arranging an adventure and, you know, and I'm trying to recruit you. In the context of that kind of a fairy tale beginning, that doesn't seem, um, that doesn't seem odd. You know, like, who are you exactly, Mr. Mister, you know, Gandalf the Wizard? And why are you arranging adventures? And if you're in the business of arranging adventures, what is your purpose in arranging adventures? And why are you arranging this adventure in this particular way? Again, those are not questions, I think, that the text invites us to ask in Chapter 1. Tom uh, Hillman says, you don't ask questions of once upon a time. Exactly. You can start off a story and say once upon a time, and... If you're, if if you as a reader, if your response to a story that begins once upon a time is yeah, but which time exactly? Um, you're not in the right space, right? It's not that that's a stupid question, but you're you're not in the right headspace for that story. As that's not a question that that story is. If the story meant to answer that question, it wouldn't have started off by saying once upon a time. However, again, in the context of you know, we're just about to get the tale of years in Appendix B uh, of the Lord of the Rings. We're no longer in Once Upon a Time. We are now at a particular date in the history of Middle-earth, and there's a context for it, and that needs to be connected. That needs to be provided. So, anyway, so those seem to be... um, That seems to be... it's it's now a significant problem, looking backwards at The Hobbit, and the quest of Erebor, one effect of the story of the quest of Erebor is to answer some of these questions. And again, that's the, that's the explicit narrative context that we're given for it. It's the question that Gimli starts off by asking, what exactly was going on here? Um, now, one small side note before we move on to our first passage. Um, when we're talking about this story, and indeed uh, many of these later stories in Unfinished Tales... We need to work hard, and I need to work hard, to avoid Critfic, uh, as I have been labeling it of late. Um, it is so tempting to start saying things like, why does Tolkien do this? What is Tolkien setting out to do? What is Tolkien thinking when he makes these changes? I find it especially difficult to avoid that vocabulary. Um, I don't know where, when or under what influence 
uh, I developed that vocabulary, that critical vocabulary, but I did. And I find it deeply ingrained in myself and in my own speech patterns when I'm talking about tech. I always want to ask that question, why? Why does, why did the author say this? Um, literally, that is an unanswerable question. It's a bad question. What I'm trying to get at is not a bad thing to try to get at, I don't think. Um, what I'm really trying to get at is not critfic, but I say it in a way that sounds like critfic. So let's um, uh, let's uh, 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 so, I'm, I'm, so I'm trying to retrain myself in the way I ask questions and the way I talk about these things. So I want you to keep me honest, and I want us all to be careful. Again, it's not about trying to get into what is the sort of the story of Tolkien's writing process because we don't know for sure. We we have some information about the circumstances. We we know about the appendices and and all of that stuff. But we, um, and you know, we can we can you know there's some time, there's some evidence that we have even of what he was thinking that is him him himself at various points in his letters and Christopher Tolkien's suggestions uh, and Christopher Tolkien's own interpretations uh, to sort of suggest at give us some uh, some some evidence to work with about what was in Tolkien's mind, but fundamentally, uh, fundamentally, I don't think. That's really a useful question. But what we can do is look at the story and say, what does the story do? What is this story interested in? What does it accomplish? And when we take it, um, and the way that it fits in between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the way that this serves, this is, I think, a clumsy metaphor, but the way that this serves as a kind of, as a kind of, as a kind of bridge I don't like that metaphor at all. A kind of a lens in some sense, a lens through which we can look at the Hobbit from the Lord of the Rings point of view um, and and help it to fit in. That's a, that's a slightly better metaphor. Still awkward, though. What kind of lens do you look through and something fits in? Um, it's not a tinted lens. I don't know. But anyway, I hope you see what I mean. Um, that seems to me to be what the effect of this story is, what this story in its various versions actually accomplishes. Um, and we have seen, um, we have seen Tolkien at various points in these earlier works, being a very careful reader of his own stories. In the Galadriel um, stuff, for instance, we were talking about this, where we see Tolkien responding uh, very carefully, fitting the later stuff that he's writing in very explicitly with some of the other things that he wrote um, earlier on. And I think that we can see some of these things going on here, and I want to look at at least one or two examples of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Roy, that the idea of this being Gandalf's version is appealing, you know, to be getting the same story from a very different point of view. But, of course, exactly the consequence of giving it to us from Gandalf's point of view, um, that is... Let me back up again. The choice of Gandalf as a narrator... No, wait, let me back up and come in again. See, I was doing it again, talking about Tolkien's choices. The fact of Gandalf serving as the narrator, by necessity, draws attention to the context of the story in the the larger history of Middle-earth, because that's Gandalf's point of view. Um, That's, you know... If we want to know, okay, but the Hobbit, the beginning of the Hobbit seems kind of limited. If we want to know answers to some of those questions, right? Why Bilbo? What's Thorin doing? Why is Gandalf bringing them together? How does this fit in? If we want to know the answers to those questions, if if the 
the Hobbit might not have encouraged us to ask those questions, but as I've tried to suggest, the Lord of the Rings has encouraged us to ask those questions. So given that that we have now been encouraged to ask those questions, where do we find the answers to those questions? Or from whom would we might we expect the answers? Well, Gandalf is from whom we might expect them. Um, so the fact of having Gandalf as a narrator opens that up to us from the very beginning. Um... <laughs> Yana says you can tell that Gandalf is the narrator from the, the number of times the word fool is used. Uh, yeah, 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 sure. Um, but let, So let's start here looking at Gandalf's own character and the changes that we can see here. Um, this is Gimli. This is in the, the B-text now. So this is, in, this is from the appendix uh, of, uh, of in, in the chapter in Unfinished Tales. So Gimli says, Then looking hard at Gandalf, he went on, But who wove the web? He was talking about how the, 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 the trip to the Lonely Mountain and the finding of the ring and all this stuff was all, was all tangled together in a web. But who wove the web? I do not think I have ever considered that before. Did you plan all this then, Gandalf? If not, why did you lead Thorin Oakenshield to such an unlikely door? <clears throat> to find the ring, and bring it far away into the west for hiding, and then to choose the ring-bearer, and to restore the mountain kingdom as a mere deed by the way? Was not that your design? So you see Gimli's suspicion, right? And this sh- seems to tell us something about uh, Gimli and presumably other members of the company, and probably more so other people who are not in the company. Um, what they think about Gandalf, you know, their view of Gandalf, that, that he is assuming that uh, Gandalf has n- knew all of this in advance, right? That this has all been part of his explicit plan from the beginning. Um, that he knew about that he knew that the ring was to be discovered, and so that when he picked Bilbo, Bilbo might have seemed a strange choice for uh, the company, you know, for the treasure hunt to 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 the Lonely Mountain. But by golly, at this point, everybody's willing to agree that Bilbo was a pretty fine choice for a ring bearer. At least the sort of the pro tem sixty year ring bearer, you know, uh, in the middle. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a good hider of the ring. So, looking back on it, Gimli's willing to say, "Okay, okay, I can give you that." That 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 was it then, right? So, so this was you were choosing when you when you brought Thorin to Bag End. It was because you were choosing out the ring bearer. Um. Uh, that's uh, again. That's his theory, right? Um, or, or that seems to be what he is implying, or what he is inclined um, to to believe. Yeah, Roy is quoting Ar- Aragorn's comment: "For he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished." Yes, though I doubt that Aragorn thinks quite to the extent that Gimli seems to here. Um, that Gandalf actually premeditated all of this stuff. Um, but, um, but yeah, um, yeah, uh, Charlie Conover makes a really good point. Uh, says, you know, the entire thing is an exercise in reverse engineering. It absolutely is. Tolkien was so good at that. The Gandalf who narrates the quest of Erebor didn't exist when The Hobbit was published any more than did Galadriel. You're absolutely right, Charlie. It's one of the interesting things that I find about this passage, which I'm going to go on and finish reading now. It's because I think here we can see... Gandalf commenting on Hobbit Gandalf uh, in, a, in a way which I find really fascinating. Gandalf did not answer at once. He stood up and looked out the window west, seawards, and the sun was then setting, and a glow was in his face. He stood so a long while, silent. 
But at last he turned to Gimli and said, I do not know the answer. For I have changed since those days, boy, and how, I have changed since those days, and I am no longer trammeled by the burden of Middle-earth as I was then. In those days, I should have answered you with words like those I used to Frodo, only last year in the spring, only last year. But such measures are meaningless. In that far distant time, I said to a small and frightened hobbit, Bilbo was meant to find the ring, and not by its maker. And you, therefore, were meant to bear it. And I might have added that I was meant to guide you both to those points. Notice that what he is... One... uh, A whole bunch of things to untangle there. But one thing. He is saying it was definitely not my plan from the beginning. Right? I didn't know all these things were going to happen. One significant thing to take from this is that looking back on this, Gandalf sees himself as one of those pieces that was being manipulated on the board. He was not the chess master. He was a piece on the board who was being manipulated every bit as much as Bilbo and Frodo themselves. Um, I would have, I might have added, I was meant to guide you both to those points. So I think it's an important thing um, that we can see Gandalf emphasizing here, looking back on it, that he was not the mover. He was not the web weaver. Um, to do To do that... I used to do that, I used in my waking mind only such means as were allowed to me, that is to, to do that to, to guide both of them to those points. He used in my waking mind a fascinating phrase, only such means as were allowed to me, doing what lay to my hand according to such reasons as I had. But what I knew in my heart, or knew before I stepped on these grey shores, that is another matter. O Loren, I was in the West that is forgotten, and only to those who are there shall I speak more openly. Um, Okay, Um, so, what do we see going on here? When he is talking about, as I was then, I have changed since those days. Right in those days, I should have said, you know, when he says, "By the burden of Middle Earth, uh, no longer trammeled by the burden of Middle Earth as I was then." Um, I think the distinction is not between, for instance, Hobbit Gandalf and Fellowship of the Ring Gandalf. The distinction which Gandalf seems to be making is between Gandalf 1.0 and Gandalf 2.0. That is pre and post resurrection Gandalf. Um, my understanding of this, the limitations that he talks about that he had before, the being trammeled by the burden of Middle-earth as he was then, the whole waking mind thing. Um, I take this to mean Gandalf seems to have been incarnated. That is, he was he uh, was his spirit, the spirit of Aloran the Maya was incarnate in a fleshly being, like that his the, the, the wisdom and knowledge and power of his Maya essence was Restricted by the workings of his of the the fleshy gray matter that was actually inside the skull of the body that he was working, he did not have um, unlimited Maya powers. He did not know all of the things that he knew when he was in Valinor. It was not simply a vessel that he uh, incarnated. That is, this is you know we know that the Valar and the Maiar can give themselves bodies, can appear in physical bodies. Um, the Astari, and we'll come back to this when we do the chapter on the Astari, um, but it, it appears, and this passage seems to speak of that uh, uh, pretty directly, 
they they were not like that. They were not just manifestation, physical manifestations of a spiritual being. They actually lived in bodies. They had a relation with their physical bodies that was like the relationship between the spirit and the body of men and hobbits and, and, and other creatures. Now, I know the relationship between spirit and body, between elf and human, are not exactly the same. I, I, I know that, and I don't want to get into all that too much. But... Um, but I do think... So, Christopher, yes, I do think that that means that some of his memory of Aloran was restricted as Gandalf the Grey. He didn't know all of those things. He didn't... Um, he didn't... Uh, uh, he, 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 was, he, was, he was restricted. Only being able to, um, to... He knew some things, clearly remembered some things, but he had to learn things, and he could forget things, and he... Um, uh, missed a lot of things, and he was restricted by his physical being. He got tired. He had to sleep. Um, uh, anyway, th- those seem to be the restrictions. Gandalf 2.0, the post-resurrection Gandalf, seems to me what he seems to be implying here: the fact that he is no longer trammeled by the burden of Middle Earth now in Gandalf 2.0, post resurrection Gandalf being no longer trammeled with the burden of Middle Earth, I take that as meaning that he's no longer incarnated in that way. That Gandalf 2.0 is much more like, if if it is not simply a, manif- a manifestation, a physical manifestation, um, at least its setup works very differently. Remember um, when he says to Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas um, when he comes back for the first time in the White Rider chapter, um, you know, indeed none of you have any weapons that could that could hurt me. Um, again, he seems to be uh, he seems to be uh, uh, um, just suggesting that the nature of his body is fundamentally different than it was in. Um, his previous appearance, in his previous incarnation. Whether that means that he is simply an incarnated spirit now, where he wasn't before, or whether in this second version of his incarnation, or in his reincarnation, or even possibly his reanimation, he does, after all, reappear again in the same place where his body got left on top of the mountain after he fought the Balrog, it's possible his spirit is just sent back into that same body, which is brought back to life and his relation with that body is in a different condition, we don't really know exactly. Um, he doesn't spell this stuff out. Um, but, uh, but, but anyway, so I, I, th- this seems to be one of the things that he's pointing to. Now, Arthur makes the sensible suggestion that we should call this, this the, the resurrected Gandalf, Gandalf 3.0 rather than 2.0. That Hobbit Gandalf is 1.0, Fellowship of the Ring Gandalf is 2.0, and uh, Two Towers and Return of the King Gandalf is 3.0. That makes sense, but I want to be consistent here. Um, because there's a, uh, there's a difference there. To, 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 to do that is to blur um, the looking at and the looking along directions. Um, that is to say, in th- when, you're, when we're looking along it, when we're, when, we're, when we're going down within the history of Middle-earth, within the Middle-earth world, um, and looking at Gandalf as he's presented there, the only distinction is between Gandalf pre- and post-resurrection, right? Um, we are meant to understand that Gandalf is more or less continuous, um, between the Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring, he's aged some, right? We get some of those comments from Frodo uh, at the beginning, you know, about how Gandalf looks a little bit more careworn and everything. 
but he's uh, um, but he's still pretty much the same guy. The radical change happens after his resurrection. However, if we look at it instead of looking along it, if we back up at it and look at it as a literary process, we can see there are clearly differences between Gandalf 1.0 and Gandalf 2.0. Uh, uh, Arthur, in what you're suggesting, is between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings Gandalf. Um, so, to me, I would say there are two different categories of Gandalf, but the line breaks in different ways depending on whether we're looking at it or looking along it. If we're looking along it, the break is at the resurrection. If we're looking at it, the break is between The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and I, So I don't want to just kind of confuse those two things because I don't think there's any way that we can make a consistent division of all three of those things together. Um... Yeah, good. Let's see. Um, sorry, looking back up here in a second. Um, his comment about the West. Oh, Lauren, I was in the West that is forgotten, and only to those who are there shall I speak more openly. A couple of you were asking, Roy and Chuck were both asking, what does he mean by the way, you know, who has forgotten the West, Chuck asks. Um it is a very interesting phrasing, because, of course, in one sense, nobody's really forgotten. I mean, okay, some people have forgotten the West, you know, like, uh, um, you know, the residents of Bree are, have more or less forgotten the West. But, um, so it's not like everyone in Middle-earth remem- remembers it. But um, but I'm not sure that that's what he means. That I don't, you know, we could possibly take that in the sense of the West, which has been forgotten by most of the people who live in Middle-earth, I think that would probably be a true statement to say that most of them have forgotten it. Um, could it mean by him in some sense? Before I stepped on these gray shores, that is another matter. Oloran I was in the West that is forgotten, and only to those who are there shall I speak more openly forgotten in the sense of I have left that behind and, you know, in this whole process of being first incarnated and then resurrected, um, you know, you know, coming twice now to Middle-earth, um, I have left it behind or I have, um, um, uh, yeah, oh, Chris has an interesting reinterpretation. Oh, Lauren, I was in the West. That is forgotten. Um, he wants to to attach that is forgotten to a Lauren rather than to the West. Um, that a Lauren has been forgotten. Um, syntactically, I don't know if that'll stand up though. I like that uh, in some ways, but I'm not sure it'll stand up. Um, in the West, that is forgotten really seems like a thing. Uh, um, it would, it, I mean, it would be who, wouldn't it? I think you know. A Lauren I was in the West. Who's been forgotten? Um, if it meant a Lauren. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure we can do that, though I'd kind of like to. Um, but uh, anyway, so one thing we can see the story doing already, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing too well in my procedure through the uh, uh, rest of the slides I have here. To, I'm so going to accelerate as we go along. Um, uh, but um, the... The first thing that we can see the story doing here is inviting us to look back at Gandalf. We may remember a more limited Gandalf. He's sort of preparing us for his own limitations. When he tells us his version of the Hobbit story, as we will see of the inception of the Hobbit story, there's going to be a lot of ignorance uh, on Gandalf's part. There's going to be a lot of explanations of the stuff he didn't know and what he didn't understand about what was going on. So the first thing that he does is explain, I was different back then. 
um, you have to first understand that uh, I wasn't really the same. So anyway, um, that's uh, um, that's the first move that the story makes, and it seems that again the consequence of it. One, to me, one of the things which is most difficult to avoid when going back and looking carefully at chapter one of The Hobbit after doing the after reading The Lord of the Rings is the character of Gandalf. Gandalf, who becomes so central. Um, you know, that Gandalf's stock rises a lot between The Hobbit and the end of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and to imagine Lord of the Rings Gandalf, um, you know, to, to finish The Return of the King and then go back to chapter one of The Hobbit is, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, a little bit jarring. Um, it's hard to return to the little old man who knocked on Bilbo's door and randomly invited to be part of him to be part of an adventure. Um, you know, it's not that it can't be explained, but it needs explaining, and it's the first thing that Gandalf, in, Gandalf himself here invites us to do. Now, the other thing, having done that, having invited us to sort of look back at Gandalf himself, the character, the person, differently, he then invites us to recontextualize the entire story uh, very significantly. Why was he interested in Thorin? How did he get connected at all with this? Why did Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey, mind? You know, again, this wasn't a question in The Hobbit, but now, what Gandalf, who's involved in all these things, who's concerned with all these big-picture things, why is he going around arranging adventure for dwarves and hobbits, exactly? Um, uh, well, um, he explains. My chief reason was that of a captain, a member of a council of war. By the way, this is one of those, as you see, uh, the AH down here is for Annotated Hobbit. Um, this is one of those passages from the B text, which is in the Annotated Hobbit and not in the appendix uh, to, to uh, uh, the chapter in Unfinished Tales. Um, <clears throat> okay, my chief reason was that of a captain, a member of a council of war. When I met Thorin, I had long known that Sauron had arisen again, and I expected him to declare himself soon. I knew that he was planning a great war, and I surveyed all the lands in my mind. The urgent question was, which would he do first? Try to reoccupy Mordor, or attack the small but powerful strongholds of his chief enemies, Lorien and Rivendell? I felt sure that he meant to attack them. It would have been the better move for him. Lorien was near, that would come first. But Rivendell was not out of reach. He only needed to reoccupy the old realm of Angmar, and before long he might find that only too easy. His power was growing fast, and if he sent any great force of his servants that way, between them and the passes of the northern mountains, there lay only the dwarves of the Iron Hills and the remnants of the men of Dale that lived on the edge of the desolation of Smaug. Smaug he might use with terrible effect. The north then was a very weak point. There was time yet, but not too much. Well, I said to myself, some means must be found of dealing with Smaug, but first of all, a direct stroke against Sauron is needed. At least that may force him to make some hasty decisions. Okay, so, notice, we've got to find a way of dealing with Smaug. This is what aligns him with Thorin at all, right? But, but first of all, a direct stroke against Sauron is needed. So you see, the clear direction that this story gives us, right? Um, you know, in, in, in as much as this story serves as that kind of lens through which we're to look back at The Hobbit from the point of view of The Lord of the Rings, um, in as much as it's doing that, one of the first clearest directions is, it's giving us is flip the entire story on its head, right? 
The entire story is the story of the journey to the Lonely Mountain and ultimately the death of the dragon and the reestablishment of the kingdom under the mountain. That's the main story. Oh, and by the way, um, as a side note, and a side note only mentioned a couple times in the published Hobbit, um, the necromancer also was overthrown. We learn that he exists in chapter one, but that he's way too big for the dwarves to handle. Um, we uh, we learn at the very, very end, in fact, in an overheard conversation, not even directly brought into the narrative, that the necromancer has been overthrown. Um... Now, so so again, it is it is as it is as tangential a little side story as could be um, in the context of the published Hobbit. The first instruction we get here is flip it, right? That's the real story. That's the big story. And the entire trip to the Lonely Mountain is a sidelight. It is a footnote on the bigger story. It is one small stage. We have we are invited to think as Gandalf. Um, with you know him looking at all of you know the 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 west of Middle Earth as this one big chessboard, and him trying to figure out where what kind of pieces he has available to him and how he can place them to try to counter the moves that the enemy might make, and he's in trouble because there's Smaug there. Um, so Smaug is 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 you know this huge piece that Sauron has that he could move over into Angmar and attack Rivendell, and what are they going to do about that? And he's gonna uh, he himself. That is, Sauron is probably going to attack Lorien pretty soon, um, and they're going to be in trouble. So the primary thing... Um, uh, yeah, Charlie says, Are we then to presume that Dol Guldur was heavily garrisoned with an invading army strong enough to cross, and, to cross the Anduin in force? Charlie, I have to believe that that is, in fact, what we are being invited to ask. We're... Tolkien is kind of vague about this. There are several places where Gandalf says things about his strength was growing rapidly. What does that mean, exactly? His own personal strength? That is, Sauron himself is getting greater in some way? Um, That he is recovering or something? Or does it mean that he is rallying more and more forces to his, you know, to his control, um, you know, under his command. And Charlie, I'm more inclined to that. He doubtless has been growing in power over the course of the Third Age since, you know, he had that little low point at the beginning of the Third Age with the cutting of the ring from his finger. And he's been rallying since then and is certainly now stronger and more powerful personally than he was, you know, in year five of the Third Age. But he, uh, um, but I don't think when Gandalf is thinking about him growing, you know, sort of month by month and year by year, I don't think that that's what he's thinking of here. I, because th- presumably that would be a that would be a a, a smaller um, <laughs> change in that point. Um, but rather that um, he's thinking that Gandalf is thinking about uh, again. He's thinking as a member of a council of war, right? He's thinking as a captain, and it is in that context as a captain, as a member of a council of war, that Gandalf is thinking about countering Sauron. And so, Charlie, I do think that the the the, the clearest way to understand this is that he is rallying troops. They're not necessarily all at Dol Guldur, 
necessarily. Um, that is, again, we know that the goblins of the Misty Mountains go, you know, uh, especially in the north of the Misty Mountains, all head over to the Lonely Mountain at the end of the Hobbit story. This presumably, looking through this lens now that we're being given, looking back at it, and understanding now the larger context and what the necromancer is doing and how this, what's really going on behind the scenes and out, around the borders of the Hobbit text, I think that we're being invited to understand that as essentially a success of Gandalf's strategy. First of all, a direct stroke against Sauron is needed. At least it may force him to make some hasty decisions. Presumably, all of those orcs that were up in the Misty Mountains were probably not intended to go out to the Lonely Mountain and end up fighting and being largely killed in the Battle of Five Armies. Presumably, it was those goblins strengthened by Smaug. Sm- Smaug was supposed to come to them, not them to Smaug, presumably. That, I'm I'm, I'm guessing, those were the troops that were positioned to go into the north, uh, reestablish themselves in Angmar, and come south to Rivendell. That doesn't end up having happening. What other troops are there? With whom exactly is he going to attack Lorien? We don't know. He he never actually says. But um, uh, but anyway, that I think is um, um, that I think is is how we are understanding. Again, that's the context that we're being given here with this whole member of a council of war thing and the way that he is inviting us to think about this. So, um, so this is the this is the context that we are given um, and the and the point of view from which Gandalf is coming at the story. So this is he tells us this so that we can better understand what is in his, Gandalf's mind when he is talking to Thorin. Um, it's not about the ring for him. Again, Gimli was saying at the beginning, were you, you know planning on the recovery of the ring and the hiding of the ring from the beginning? No. But he is thinking strategically. He is thinking all of these things. It's not about the Dwarven Kingdom. It's not about Smaug. I mean, it's not. It's not about you know the vengeance on Smaug by Thorin. It's not about um, Thorin's treasure. It's not just about an adventure. It is about maneuvering one piece, or really taking away one piece um, that Sauron has by 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 doing that. Um, if Gandalf can assist somebody in getting to the Lonely Mountain and, ideally, though who knows how that's going to happen, neutralizing Smaug, the whole strategic situation changes um, as far as, you know, this big picture is concerned. That's what Gandalf is thinking of. So although he's not thinking of the ring, he is thinking in these bigger terms. And that seems, I I believe, is relevant to the story that he's going to go on and tell. Now, Thorin is also thinking pretty big. This is a passage from the sea text, from the main body of the text. I gave it just because it is compressed, uh, as the sea text so often is, so we get a nice little succinct summation of Thorin's outlook here. He was troubled too, so troubled that he actually asked for my advice. So I went to him, to his, I went with him to his halls in the Blue Mountains, and I listened to his long tale. I soon understood that his heart was hot with brooding on his wrongs and the loss of the treasure of his forefathers, and burdened, too, with the duty of revenge upon Smaug that he had inherited. Dwarves take such duties very seriously. I promised to help him if I could. I was as eager as he was to see the end of Smaug, but Thorin was all for plans of battle and war, as if he were really King Thorin II, and I could see no hope in that. 
So I left him and went off to the shire and picked up the thread of news. It was a strange business. I did no more than follow the lead of chance and made many mistakes on the way. Um, again, Gandalf points there at the end to the extent to which he was, if you say, a passive tool in this. Um, when he went to the Shire, he didn't know what he was doing exactly. Um, he didn't have a clear plan. He doesn't even in this journey seem to have accomplished anything in particular. He's just following the lead of chance, as he says. Um, but uh, uh, but Thorin, one major change that we have, therefore, one clear alteration, or you could call it an addition, to the context of chapter one of The Hobbit. When we meet Thorin and his group of twelve companions in Bag End in chapter one of The Hobbit, we are now to understand this is not Thorin's plan A. So the answer to the question, why does why do Thorin and his this small group of dwarves show up? Who are they? Why did they get together? And why are they in particular and only they going on this adventure? Um and why not more? Why, why isn't he bringing an army? Answer, Gandalf told him not to. Or Gandalf tricked him into not doing that. Or something of that sort. Um, so, uh, so again, that's because, again, it would seem the obvious thing. Uh, Thorin, as his character later emerges, as the story of, as the published story of The Hobbit goes on, um, Thori, uh, Thor, Thori, Thorin as king under the mountain, I am king under the mountain, I have returned, and calling to Dan and the dwarves of the Iron Hills to rally to his cause. Um, the Thorin of, you know, chapter 15, chapter 17 of The Hobbit um, doesn't seem like a Thorin who would be like, nah, I'm just going to find 12 of my close companions and we're just going to set out for the mountain, you know, just the 13 of us. Maybe we'll pick up a burglar on the way and then we're good. It seems like an odd kind of plan for Thorin. Um to come up with. Not really consistent. Again, chapter 1 Thorin, not exactly consistent necessarily with chapter 15, 17 Thorin. Um, and certainly not consistent, especially when we put it in the context of the um, the larger history of Durin's folk that we get in Appendix A. Remember, this was part of that story, right? So think back to the Appendix A story. Think back to the Battle of Azanulbazar. Why did the Battle of A- of Azanul Bazar happen because Azog killed uh, because Azog killed Thror and there was this this is actually one thing that um, uh, Tolkien emphasized more strongly in that first uh, manuscript text the, the one that's published in the Peoples of Middle-earth um, emphasizing the the devotion between not only uh, the protectiveness of their children by dwarves but the, the sort of nearly fanatical um, uh, protectiveness of children to parents as well, that an insult or an injury done to somebody, someone's father um, is like the deadliest, is the way to make a dwarf your deadliest enemy, and that the kings and rulers were viewed as fathers by everyone in the clan, so when Azog not only kills, but insults the body of Thror, that's why all of the dwarves like from all around the world are willing to come and fight this long bloody war for years against the goblins until they finally hunt down Azog and have the last big battle, um, the battle of Azanulbazar, um, is because they were all coming to take vengeance for the insult that was done. Well, again, in the context of that story, now we come to Erebor, right? 
Thror has bequeathed his vengeance on Smaug uh, to Thran, even if the attack on Erebor by uh, by Smaug might not have quite the same impact. You know, the this cannot be born impact of, you know, Azog's mockery uh, and defilement of the corpse of Thror. Still, it was pretty bad. And, uh, and you gotta think, you know, dwarves take vengeance really seriously. Plan A, clearly, again, in the context of, of Appendix A, clearly Plan A, Thorin's Plan A would be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rally everybody I can find, all of the dwarves, who's gonna wanna be left behind? Right, Gimli's talked about he, how he didn't want to be left behind. Who would be left behind? Let's go! You know, let's, 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 let's take out the dragon somehow. Um, well, that is not, um, the story that we get in chapter one of The Hobbit, so we need to recontextualize that. And this, so that's one of the pressures. It's one of the significant pressures that is on this text. It's one of the things that this story seems to be setting out to do. How do we reconcile those things? How do we make chapter one of The Hobbit make sense in the context, uh, uh, given this context? Now, I'll say as a side note, this is one thing that we can see quite consistently in Tolkien as a reinterpreter. When he's doing backwards engineering, um, rarely, not never, of course, you know, happened very famously with his alteration of Chapter 5 of The Hobbit from the first edition uh, to the second edition, but, um, but rarely does Tolkien just go back and make changes in order to smooth things over. He tends to keep the original version as it is, and... Uh, just recontextualize it where it might have been easier to just publish an you know a third edition of the hobbit with uh with a with a with a with an altered chapter 1 right that actually probably would have been easier but he doesn't do that right it doesn't it, it doesn't even seem to 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 make a, a a gesture towards that yet um not for not for several years yet and it's not this really that seems to be impelling him to do it but anyway um instead he's going to try to give us some backstory and context to explain why that sort of strange text is there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let me... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kate, I like your comment. I'm going to hang on to it, though. We're going to come back to that passage, I hope, later on. Um, so let's look at Gandalf's plan. How does Gandalf maneuver things into the proper position? Here's the. This is now where the, the previous passage was from the C text. Here we're back to the B text, and again, this is another one of those passages from the annotated Hobbit. Well, I heard his long tale. Some of it I knew before, though the way of Thror's death and the disappearance of Thran were only were then only known to the dwarves. If you do not know, if you do not know about them, you must get Gimli to tell you the story some other time. I was sorry in my heart for Thorin, but I could see little hope of helping him. He was involved, as I saw only too well, in the net of Sauron's designs, a dark strategy beyond his powers and beyond his grasp. That's fascinating in itself. Um, the way in which we are... I talk about recontextualizing, right? The way that we are invited to look at Thorin and his entire the entire history of the misfortunes of his race, right? That the, uh, the attack of the dragon... Which is kind of like the fairy tale premise, right, of the Hobbit. Um, it's just it's the backstory that we need to explain the trip that we're going on. Um, now we're being invited to see that as merely one of numerous incidents in 
the sort of the net in strategy that Sauron has been laying to ensnare the heirs of Durin, ultimately because he wanted that last ring of power back. Um, so, um, so, but again, that 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 for, he was involved. In, uh, as I saw only too well in the net of Sauron's designs, a dark strategy beyond his powers and beyond his grasp. Uh, again, the necromancer the necromancer is really at the root of the whole thing. Ultimately, the entire Hobbit story is really a necromancer story. Um, yet, he sat there, still talking in a large way, wondering if his cousin Dan could furnish two thousands, and if the men of that region would be likely to help, or King Thranduil, and so on, as if he was a king planning a campaign. So again, we have Thorin thinking like a king. Thorin definitely being a king in exile and not just, you know, the leader of a random company of vagabond dwarves. Um, but also, isn't it interesting to see Thorin speculating about attempting to rally the assistance not only of the men uh, of the lake, but also of King Thranduil uh, here at the beginning. At last I stopped him. I will think about all this, I said. I have the hint of a plan in my mind, but there is a piece missing that I want to find if I can. I must go now. I have some business of my own to attend to, but don't be too hopeful. My plan is very different from any of yours, and you may not like it at all. I will consider it when you return, said Thorin. Do not be long. My heart burns me. Now, I think it's important to point out that... um, I think it's important to point out that Gandalf does not actually seem to have a plan at this point. Um, I have the hint of a plan in my mind, he says, but it seems pretty clear. You know, he says, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go find out some stuff. What he is not doing is running to the Shire to find Bilbo and, and sort this out. That, he doesn't do that. Uh, he, he, he goes towards the Shire, but he does not meet with Bilbo. Um, he just needs to, as he says, follow the promptings of chance. He's got to figure stuff out. Um, uh, so anyway, again, th- that I think is another really uh, interesting thing that we see here. Gandalf has another plan um, that is at cross-purposes with um, with Thorin, uh, with Thorin's manner of thinking here. Um, but he doesn't yet know... His, it seems... Uh, well, we'll see again a little bit more how he talks. We're going to be in the B text now for a while. I want to look at at how the story unfolds here in the B text version, and we'll come back and look at some of the alterations that Tolkien made when he revised that for the C text. Um, so our next set of like uh, six or seven slides is going to be from the B text. Um, uh, Roy, I agree. We do see Gandalf's pity as well. Um, his pity informing his desire to assist Thorin. Um, not just his strategy, but his pity as well. Gandalf is not just a puppet master, right? He is not just, you know, the chest master facing Thorin, uh, fa- facing Thorin, facing Sauron, uh, you know, across the field uh, and trying to maneuver his pieces around. Um, he is also still um, a person motivated by pity and wanting to do good, not just in the big picture, sacrificing his pawns along the way, but also for their benefit um, as well. Um, okay, yeah, uh, Nancy's uh, remarking on the idea of Thranduil being an ally to Thorin, yeah, um, which doesn't seem that improbable, and, you know, that whole misunderstanding, or rather, again, think about the way in which that invites us to look at chapter 8 and 9 of The Hobbit, you know, the, the, the imprisonment of Thorin. Now, looking back at it from that point of view, 
it sounds kind of tragic, doesn't it? Here was Thorin thinking, maybe Thranduil will help. Maybe I could get King Thranduil to assist us. And then when he meets King Thranduil, he's taken captive by him and treated like a like a criminal. And he gets all huffy and defensive and refuses to tell him anything about it. So whereas he had initially been contemplating, again, we are now, after the fact, being invited to, to, to imagine Thorin had been... Uh, contemplating asking Thranduil for help, and now he's going to refuse to even talk to him. Um, And they're going to end up facing each other across a field of battle. Um, Because uh, it just wouldn't work out. Scott is right, too. Scott Farmer says, it also makes it sound so sad that Thranduil didn't even recognize him. Yeah, what a kick in the teeth that is, right? Here's Thorin thinking of himself as a king in exile and thinking, I should approach one of my neighbor monarchs, King Thranduil, and see if he will assist me. And when he finally meets him face to face, that, you know, his brother monarch in the woods is like, who the heck are you, you bum? You look like a like a thief or something. Um yeah, yeah, uh, Scott. That is um, uh, that does make that um, seem worse. I think, um, but again, see, that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating when we look at these stories, when we look at these um, these retellings, and in particular w- with what we're getting in the Quest of Erebor and what we got to some extent um, in Galadriel and Celeborn too, but much more strongly here. Um, not just a retelling like with the Isildur story, but a recontextualizing. This 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 lens. I'm, I'm sticking with that metaphor because it's the best I've got. Um, that this lens with which we're now being invited, through which we're being invited to look back at the original story. And when we do, new things kind of pop out, and we're now invited to 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 think in new ways to understand what was written in the Hobbit, not to chuck it out, but to understand it in different ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur says, and a couple of you have pointed out similar things, uh, if Thorin had a ring, we'd be talking about his grandiose plans and visions about now. Um, yes, yes, we would. Um, but this seems to be just... I, again, I think the fact that he's thinking too grandiosely doesn't necessarily mean... I mean, I don't think that's like a, you know like Boromir's ring-induced monologue kind of thing, or even you know the, the brief little fantasy that... Um, that Sam has, uh, you know, on the threshold of Mordor. Um, I don't think he's deluding himself to that extent. Unlike either Boromir or Sam, um, uh, Thorin is in fact a king, right? Um, what he is thinking too grandly of is, um, he's basically, Gandalf seems to suggest two things. First, you are overestimating your resources. As uh, Chris Lawson pointed out, it turns out that Dan could only muster 500, in fact, not 2,000s. So even there, yes, he can count on his kin in the Iron Hills to back him up, but even from them, he is quadrupling the support that he imagines they could actually give uh, to battle. So um, uh, so anyway, th- I think that that's um, uh, an example of the kind of delusion that is affecting Thorin here. Um, It's more like wishful thinking. He's picturing himself as a king in exile rather than as an outcast. Um, uh, And uh, and of course, Roy, as you point out, there's a kind of irony in the fact that in the end the men and Thranduil do in fact help. Right? Um, But uh, in a way which is really only kind of, uh, you know, an ironic fulfillment of this vision 
uh, in the beginning. But of course, the other aspect that Gandalf seems to be suggesting is that not only is he overestimating his own pull, he's underestimating the power of the dragon. Um, getting together an army to assault the Lonely Mountain, this is not an a this is this 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 is not a winning plan against Smaug. Now, not that they ever do come up with a winning plan <laughs> against Smaug, but that ain't one. Uh, Gandalf is is pretty clearly suggesting. So, Gandalf comes back. Uh, I'm going to be labeling these just to, to make sure that there's no confusion when you're looking at it. Um, I'll be putting in parentheses whether it's early or late, whether it's B text or C text. Um, so we're going to be looking at the early text, as I said, for now. Gandalf is going to, he comes back after thinking it through a little bit more, and he comes back and he pitches his crazy plan. My plan is one of stealth. Stealth. Smaug does not lie on his costly bed without dreams, Thorin Oakenshield. He dreams of dwarves. You may be sure that he explores his hall day by day, night by night, until he is sure that no faintest air of a dwarf is near before he goes to his sleep, his half-sleep, prick-eared for the sound of dwarf feet. You make your stealth sound as difficult and hopeless as any open attack, said Balin. Impossibly difficult. Yes, it is difficult, I answered, but not impossibly difficult, or I would not waste my time here. I would say absurdly difficult. So I am going to suggest an absurd solution to the problem. Take a hobbit with you. Smaug has probably never heard of hobbits, and he has certainly never smelt them. Okay. Uh, Now, Kate says, no, he dreams of a warrior with a sword. Yeah, but remember, he dreams of a warrior altogether insignificant in size. Uh, it doesn't say who the warrior is. Uh, it doesn't say that, you know, it, uh, um, you know I've suggested uh, half in fun uh, at various points that he's having sort of a, uh, a, a race memory dream of, 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 uh, of Turin. Um, exactly, Scott. Right. A, a racial memory of Turin. I, I, that, that's how I like to think about that 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 dream. That it's a little nod by Tolkien back to these other stories that he's written, and which haven't been published and may never be published, so far as he knows. Um, but I think I, this is, I think, one of those examples where we can see Tolkien in writing this story doing really careful reading of his original text. We know we get that reference to Smaug's dream, right? So you know, just as you guys were all thinking of that. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I did, you know, Tolkien is recalling that as well. And notice how he's recontextualizing it. Now, recontextualizing that as well. Looking back through this lens again, now we are reinterpreting that. If we were thinking of Turin, we're not thinking of, we're not supposed to be thinking of Turin anymore, right? He was thinking of, now we're thinking of, um, a dwarf, right? And as Ed is reminding us, Azekal and his dwarves do pretty well against dragons. Yes. So it's not at all an unlikely interpretation. Maybe he was dreaming of a dwarven warrior uh, uh, coming to slay him. So, okay. Gandalf's new plan, stealth. We've got to sneak up on this dragon, so you need a hobbit. Okay. Question. Why are we sneaking up on the dragon? How is a hobbit going to help with that? Okay. A hobbit dragon assassin? Now, ironically, that's, of course, what did happen. Um, in one of the early draft versions, not even in the... It didn't even make it to the draft. In one of his initial plot out... 
outlines um, when he was sketching out what was going to happen in the end in the rest of the story as he was writing the Hobbit. Uh, Tolkien did um, initially conceive, you know, have the idea that Bilbo was going to kill Smaug. That that was exactly what was going to happen. Bilbo was going to sneak in um, unrecognized and and unheard and was going to, either with Sting or with one of the spears that are there hanging, you know, um, in racks on the walls of the treasure chamber, was going to stab Smaug and kill him in his sleep. Um... But yeah, Roy was just asking the same thing. And then what? I don't know, and I don't think Gandalf knows either. Remember, he's 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 just been formulating this plan, and we get lots of evidence as we watch this this passage unfold that Gandalf himself doesn't really know what he's doing because he 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 quickly paints himself into a corner. When I said that you would need stealth, I meant it. Professional stealth. Now remember, he's defending the hobbits here. Um, he, he, the, the dwarves are, you know, are talking about how useless they think the hobbits are. Um, and, uh, and he's like, no, 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 you don't understand how, and this is where he makes that, that allusion to the passage in the Hobbit where, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the dwarvish racket that they make that, you know, that Bilbo has disdain for, um, uh, you know, so how, uh, loud a tramping the dwarves make when they go across the, the Shire hobbits though. The softest footed creatures, softest footed creatures uh, in Middle Earth. When I said that you would need stealth, I meant it. Professional stealth. Professional stealth. Cried Balin, taking up my words rather differently than I had meant them. Do you mean a trained treasure seeker? Can they still be found? Oh, oh, oh! So we're gonna we're gonna hire we're gonna hire a professional thief. Oh, a treasure seeker. Okay, okay. Um, professional. Right, he takes Gandalf seems to use the word professional as merely an intensifier, not as someone who actually makes a living being stealthy, but as someone who is, um, you know, uh, who's who's who is a pro in in in, in more, something more like the modern sense. Um, so, um, but Balin takes his word professional quite literally. I hesitated. Gandalf says this was a new turn, and I was not sure how to take it. I think so, I said at last. For a reward, they will go in where you dare not, or at any rate cannot, and get what you desire. Gandalf is fibbing here. He is at least equivocating. He's not uttered any lies, right? Um, For a reward, they, that is, trained treasure seekers, will go in where you dare not, and get what you desire. There are people like that. Notice he has not explicitly said, and that's who I was talking about, and hobbits do that kind of thing, um, but uh, but he's implied, he has let that be understood. He, Balin has misinterpreted him into thinking that among the hobbits I know a cunning professional treasure seeker that you could hire to come with you. And Balin seems interested in that. And Gandalf likes the fact that they're interested and seem inclined to go along with his plan, seems not to want to tell a lie, but he is clearly misleading them here, or at least on the cusp of it. He's stuck. He doesn't want to say, no, 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 that's not what I mean. This guy's not a professional, right? Because he said it. Thorin's eyes glistened as the memories of lost treasures moved in his mind. A paid thief, you mean, he said scornfully. That might be considered. 
if the reward was not too high. Oh yeah, so maybe uh, maybe that would be um, um, maybe that would be useful. Maybe uh, you know, it might be handy to get a, a, a professional thief uh, in that in that way. Um, uh, but he keeps Thorin keeps speculating that um, we're, we're not going to find it, you know somebody like this among the hobbits, right? And so he's still back to bashing hobbits. It was defending the hobbits that led Gandalf to kind of overstep himself, to kind of misspeak himself and get himself into this quandary in the first place. Um, and, but Thorin keeps pushing, and he 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 does it again. The hobbits that I ha- the hobbit that I have in mind has ornaments of gold and eats with silver tools and drinks wine out of shapely crystal. Ah, I see your drift at last," said Balin. "He is a thief, then. That is why you recommend him." Oh, oh, so he stole all that stuff. Okay, yeah, fine, sure. At that I fear I lost my temper and my caution. This dwarvish conceit that no one can have or make anything of value save themselves, and that all fine things in other hands must have been got, if not stolen, from the dwarves at some time, was more than I could stand at that moment. A thief, I said laughing. Why, yes, a professional thief, of course. How else would a hobbit come by a silver spoon? I will put the thief's mark on his door, and then you will find it. Then being angry, I got up. So, first of all, that's not true. That's not uh, Arthur, point, uh, sorry, Arthur, let me respond to your point here. Arthur says, uh, this Balin seems less pleasant than the one we know and love. You're right. He was always the one who was so friendly um, with, uh, uh, with Bilbo from the very beginning. Seemed very kind and very friendly. But Arthur, I'm not sure we need to see this as unpleasant. I think that we can hear Balin... Um, how I am inclined to interpret Balin's comments here is Balin trying to sort of make a connection with Bilbo. There's a certain, you know, Thorin's kind of like, what is this guy up to? Like, what is this crazy plan? He's like, hobbits, hobbits are useless. Balin is the one who's kind of seizing on what Gandalf is saying. Oh, oh, a professional treasure seeker? Is that what you mean? Right? He's like, I'm trying to work with you here. Right? I'm trying to... What you're saying sounds pretty crazy, but okay. I'll get... Um, you know, and so here I guess, ah, I see your drift at last. Right? Oh, 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 okay. Right? He's a thief. That's why you're recommending him? You're telling us this because he is a professional treasure seeker, and that's what you were getting at all along, and that's what you're talking about? If he is making a... Sum- if, you know, uh, Arthur, you're right. He, he may be guilty of anti-hobbitism uh, in the same way that, that Thorny Gandalf certainly believes that he is. Um, but if so, it's, uh, it's, of a, it's of a fairly benignant kind. Uh, that is, he does seem to share, Gandalf believes, he shares the dwarvish assumption um, that if they have uh, good stuff like this, they obviously couldn't have made it themselves. But um, but again, I don't think that that's sort of a nasty thing. It's, it's not a cutting remark um, on Bowen's uh, part. Rather, it seems to be him, again, trying to work with Gandalf here. And then Gandalf utters a lie. But he's not deceiving them. He's being sarcastic. Why? Yes, a professional thief. How else would a hobbit come by a silver spoon? Um, and as Neil says, dwarves can't read sarcasm, apparently. I love Roy's comment. Roy says, and the world was saved by sarcasm. 
that seems to be the case. <laughs> Arthur adds, Istari snark backfires. Uh, yes, yes. But look what happens here. He says this thing sarcastically. He, in, in one sense, doesn't mean it. This is partly him throwing his hands up and being like, yeah, 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 right, whatever. Um, but at the same time, look, then being angry, I got up and said with a warmth that surprised myself, you must look for that door, Thor and Oakenshield. I am serious. And suddenly, I felt that I was indeed in hot earnest. This queer notion of mine was not a joke. It was right. It was desperately important that it should be carried out. The dwarves must bend their stiff necks. Gandalf gets backed into a corner. He's trying to say, I think my plan is you need stealth. You need to bring a burglar with you, and a hobbit would make a really good burglar. In saying that, Gandalf's conscious plan, his rational plan, is very incomplete. As we talked about, what's the plan? What's the point? Why would you bring a burglar? Gandalf does not seem to have worked that out. But... Um, when he gets here, having been pushed into this, you know, by their misunderstandings and irritated by their comments about Hobbit, um, uh, goaded into losing his temper and his caution and saying this sarcastic thing, as soon as he says the sarcastic thing, he realizes that it's not a joke, that it was right. He is a professional thief. He didn't mean it. It wasn't true when he said it. But he realizes that actually it is true, or it's going to be true, that this thing was right, that this he has somehow come to the conclusion that what he has said, and he didn't know why he said it, and he didn't plan to say it exactly this way, and this whole idea of professional burglar and everything has gotten completely out of control and is nowhere near what Gandalf came into this conversation meaning to suggest, but having gotten there, he says... That's actually, this is correct. This is what it's supposed to be. Um, and again, so we see Gandalf himself being manipulated, him not understanding this kind of accident emerging, um, and him now coming to recognize, sort of listening to his own self and recognizing um, that uh, what he's, this strange thing that's coming out is is uh, um, is in fact what is in some sense destined to be, um, and then he goes to the really strange part of the conversation, because immediately having having committed to this and having recognized it's desperate, this needs to happen. It's desperately important. Now he's seeing the down the the shortfalls. Okay, I started off trying to convince them to go and recruit a hobbit. Now I'm realizing that. They're, they might actually do this. And if they do this, things are going to fall apart. So, okay, I'm, I've got to get them there at any cost. So he's willing to deceive them, or at least let them proceed on, on, false, on a false understanding, right? Um, he's going he's gonna to let them go to the Shire under the mistaken belief that this guy is, in fact, a professional thief who's looking for a job, as he's going to you know, put on his door. Um, and he's willing to do that because he knows it's desperately important that this happens. But he's also now recognizing, oh, this thing could backfire, right? The Hobbit is not a professional thief, and so this is unlikely. Um, this is unlikely to uh, 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 really work out smoothly. So he starts 
telling them how they have to do this. You must be patient, and not easily put off, if neither the courage nor the desire for adventure that I speak of are plain to see at first sight. He will deny them. He will try to back out, but you must not let him. The dwarves are obviously really confused. Like, wait, wait, you were just telling us that you have a guy that is a professional treasure seeker. He is like, uh, I like, Carolyn, I love your image, um, that Balin sees Bilbo as like the Indiana Jones of hobbits. Uh, that is exactly the picture that I have in my own head, I know, when they're talking about a professional treasure seeker. I, I am totally imagining Bilbo Baggins in, a, in, in an Indiana Jones hat. Um, when that it, when when that topic of conversations comes up, so so having having been led to expect Indiana Jones, you know the the the, the three foot tall Indiana Jones with furry feet, um, uh, he's now he's now saying he's not going to look like it at all. In fact, he's probably not going to want adventure. He's going to deny any any. But 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 don't let him back out. And Thorne's like, haggling will not help him if that's what you mean, right? He, he can't even process what Gandalf is saying now. You say you know a professional who's going to pretend he's not a professional? Why would he do that? To raise his price? I guess that that's that's how it makes sense to Thorin, right? Um, I will offer him a fair reward for anything he recovers and no more, right? I'm not going to fall to any kind of wacky haggling tactics that this guy tries to put up, Right? It is not what I meant, but it seemed useless to say so. There is one other thing, I went on, and you you must make all your plans and preparations beforehand. Get everything ready. Once persuaded, he must have no time for second thoughts. You must go straight from the Shire, east on your quest. He sounds a very strange creature, this thief of yours, said a young dwarf called Fiwi, Thorin's nephew, as I afterwards learned. He sure does sound like a strange creature, as Gandalf is describing him. Um, and, uh, this is uh, this is a little strained, I think, in some ways. Gandalf is now anticipating trouble with Bilbo, but he hasn't attempted to see him first. The way in which this story seems to prompt us to understand this fact is the the the, the fact that Gandalf himself um, is kind of taken by surprise by this plan that he had not really worked it out, and he certainly didn't under, didn't know um, what the uh, um, uh, what the dwarves, you know, this sort of con- conception of the professional thief that the dwarves were going to come out with. Um, but um, then, of course, they they get to Bag End, and Gandalf says everything went really, really terribly, and he talks about the fight with Thorin that Bilbo slept through. Thorin was contemptuous and suspicious and felt that I had deceived him. Thief, he snorted. He is as honest as he is silly. His mother died too soon. And anyway, many of the spoons were tin. I love that. He didn't have silver spoons. You are playing some strange game of your own, Master Gandalf. I am sure you have other purposes than helping me. By the way, you get, of course, the rich reference in the silver spoons, right? Um, The the, the irony of that reference. Um, He has, Gandalf says, you you, you can, you know, yeah, he, he has some silver spoons, right? And, uh, Thorin comes and says most of his spoons, uh, or some of his spoons, were made out of tin. Um, but of course, we know that Bilbo has silver spoons. They feature pretty strongly in Chapter One of the Fellowship of the Ring. The silver spoons. We know that he had silver spoons before uh, uh, Lobelia Sackville Baggins stole them at the auction. So those silver spoons, of course, are going to go away. But he's going to replace them with silver that he gets from the dwarves, right? Um, uh, Anyway, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Roy is confused about the comment, his mother died too soon. You know, Roy, I'm not 100% sure that I understand that either. That is my understanding. The best way that I can understand that is sort of Thorin suggesting that basically he's still immature. You know, like he, he, he he's not he's not even really like a grown-up yet. He still needs grown-up supervision. And what's more, he still needs his mommy's supervision, which I think is meant to make it a double insult. Um, but that line, his mother died too soon, is in all four drafts of this story. Um, uh, it's, that is, that is a consistent line. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I, that, that I think is, is what it's, what he, he means, uh, um, he means to, uh, to, to be suggesting there. Um, Anyway, you are playing some strange game of your own, Master Gandalf. I am sure you have other purposes than helping me. Notice uh, the way that he seems to... The way I take it, uh, his emphasis in that line. You have other purposes than helping me. That is, you're just manipulating me for some other end. You're not actually trying to help me. And But Gandalf takes that and turns it in a different way. You are quite right, he said. If I had not other purposes, I should not be helping you at all. Great as your affairs may seem to you, they are only a small strand in the great web. I am concerned with many strands, but that should make my advice more weighty, not less. I know your fame, said Thorin, and I must hope that it is merited. Even so, this foolish business of the Hobbit might make me wonder whether so many cares had not disordered your wits. There are certainly enough to do so, I answered, and among them I find most exasperating a proud dwarf who seeks advice from me, without claim on me that I know of, and then speaks to me with insolence. Go your own way, Thorin Oakenshield, if you will. But you have sought advice, and that cannot be undone. If you flout it, you will do so at your on your peril." You will walk to disaster. Beware. You and your quest are caught up in a much greater matter. If you succeed, it will be so that other larger causes may be furthered. Curb your pride and your greed, or you may fall at the end, though your hands be full of gold. Um, yes, Arthur, Thorin calls Gandalf foolish. Isn't that interesting? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, he lapses into prophecy here. Kind of as he came to understand... Gandalf doesn't seem to have planned this, and I don't think that he has foreseen this long in advance. This seems to be a prophecy that comes to him in this moment, just as the realization that his crazy plan was actually a good one, um, and a really important one, seems to only come to him in that moment. That moment where he kind of turns on himself and recognizes, gosh, I am serious. I really mean this. I didn't realize that, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um... Several of you are commenting on the the sort of apparent oddity of this the the web things the um, um, the sort of spidery imagery um, that we are getting here and how strange it seems given the status of spiders uh, in the rest of the legendarium. Um, I don't think a spider web is actually what we are imagining here. Um, um, I think that that's yes, Roy, it's the web of story. Web in the sense of a tapestry, which was called a web. Um, that's one of the definitions of the word web, is something that is woven. Um, so it is, you know, as anyone who has ever done any weaving knows, to make a tapestry, uh, to make a storied web, as Tolkien would call it, 
um, that is a tapestry that depicts pictures which themselves tell a story, that requires a lot of planning, right? You have to be really on top of what colors go where and in what sequence and everything if you want the whole thing to turn out actually telling the story that you're trying to tell. Um, so I don't think there's actually a spider metaphor at all here. Um, he's thinking of tapestries. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's not a great web. It's the great web. It is the web of... Uh, it is the web of story. It is the... It is the, um, the, the it's like um, the music and the, the the way that the Valar are seeking to bring um, to bring into being. You know, they they get the vision of the music and then they descend into the world and find that things are only on point to begin and they have to make it happen. Right, the weaving is still to be done. Um, yeah, Charlie is pointing out there are great webs hanging in Medusel. Yeah, the the word comes in um, several times. Um, yeah, the webs in, in the halls of Mandos, Brianna. That, that's what I was thinking of there. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an old. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Middle English, and I think probably an Old English also usage of the word web. Um, um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. We do get webs in Numenor also. It's, 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 it is a fairly common Tolkien usage. In fact, I bet if you were to go through um, and search for webs in Tolkien's work, you would find that the majority of the time they refer to tapestries rather than to spider webs. Uh, and that would make, actually, it sort of work the other way around, that the spider webs are themselves the imitation. Um, they are themselves the, uh, the mockery of those other webs. Anyway, um, but so anyway, good question. I'm glad we, uh, um, I'm glad we, uh, we sort of got to that. And as Sandra points out, with a tapestry, one can see the warp and weft and not comprehend the full picture. Um, the ones at the back of the, uh, the ones that are on the back of the tapestry and not the front. Um, yeah, you can see a whole section. You can see everything laid out and not really see the picture that's going to, uh, come together. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so when you're looking at the big picture in this context, it's more than just seeing widely. Um, it's much, much more complicated than that. Um, this is one of the later comment, uh, one of the later passages. Again, this is not in uh, Unfinished Tales. Um, his comment about Thorin's reaction to the uh, the unexpected party at Bag End. The map and the key brought all the past vividly back to him, to Thorin, that is. He was young for a dwarf at the sack of Erebor, a mere twenty-four, but he had often wondered, as he told me, how Thorin and Thrain escaped from their halls. The existence of a secret door only discoverable by dwarves made it seem at least possible to find out something of the dragon's doings, perhaps even to recover some gold, or some heirloom to ease his heart's longings. I do not suppose that when he started he had any real hope of destroying Smaug, there was no hope, yet it came about. But alas, Thorin did not live long enough to enjoy his triumph for his treasure. The pride and the greed overcame him in spite of my warning. Okay. So, um... What was the plan again? There is no plan. But notice, everybody involved... <laughs> 
recognizes that there's no plan. If you look back at chapter one of The Hobbit from the point of view of The Lord of the Rings, even from the point of view of chapter, you know, 14, 15, uh, or chapter 12 of The Hobbit, that's the big question. What is Gandalf doing? Wait, what was the plan again? What's the burglar supposed to do? How is this supposed to work out? Um, under what circumstances was this ever going to amount to success in his plan? And um, the answer is it wasn't. Gandalf says, I didn't know what was going on, right? All he knew was that this was right, that this should happen. And then he proceeds, essentially on faith, to say, do this. And Thorin, having faith in Gandalf's reputation, having faith in Gandalf's prophecy, having faith in his foretelling. Remember, in, or maybe you don't remember, in text B, um, it's, this is one of, the di- one of the differences between text B and text C. In text C, the later version, Gandalf says, and we'll look at this passage in a minute, Gandalf says, a foretelling is upon me. Right? In text B, he doesn't say that. Thorin interprets that. Gandalf says, oh, you know, it's, it's really important. You've got to take this hobbit with you. Thorin says, it's, it sounds like a foretelling is upon you, right? Um, so G- Thorin seems willing. The only reason Thorin is willing to go along at all is because he seems to believe or to accept that Gandalf has some kind of prophetic insight. That, you know, he's a wizard and he's got this reputation, so I, this doesn't make any sense to me and this is probably going to be ridiculous, but um, the wizards, you know, I, you know, let's roll the dice on uh, on the fact that the wizard has some idea what he's talking about when he seems to be foretelling the future. Um, all of them, Thorin and Gandalf, are operating on faith that it's right that this should happen. That he doesn't know what how this is going to bring it about, none of them don't, there's no real hope to destroy Smaug, and everybody knows that when they set out. Okay, we've got no plan? Excellent. Off we go. That's where they all are, and um, where that seems like a kind of oversight in the book, in the published Hobbit. Again, looking back at chapter 1 from the vantage point of chapter 12, it begins to sound like, wait a second, what was anybody thinking back in chapter 1? Now, we're going to fill in that gap, and the answer is, no, we're just going to embrace the fact that nobody had a plan. That is the context that we get. The fact that we're supposed to embrace the lack of the plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Charlie. That's the passage I'm thinking of when, uh, uh, when Bilbo feels inclined to point out that the getting rid of Smaug has always been a weak point in their plan. Precisely. Um, good. Now, later on, um, here's uh, just a couple passages from the later version, from the sea text um, version of this. Look at the look at Gandalf's emphasis. The existence of a secret door, only discoverable by dwarves, made it seem at least possible to find out something of the dragon's doings, perhaps even to recover some gold or some heirloom to ease his heart's longings. But that was not enough for me, says Gandalf. Now again, this is now this is the revised version. I knew in my heart that Bilbo must go with him, or the whole quest would be a failure. Or, as I should say now, the far more important events by the way would not come to pass. So I had still to persuade Thorin to take him. There were many difficulties, 
on the road afterwards, but for me this was the most difficult part of the whole affair. Though I argued with him far into the night after Bilbo had retired, it was not finally settled until early the next morning. Um, okay, so notice, the thing here that I want to particularly emphasize is the turn there at the, on the second paragraph of this quotation. That was not enough for me. Um, yeah, I, I got him a burglar, but it wasn't burglary that I had in mind. That wasn't the plan. I didn't plan for Bilbo to go in and steal something, right? That wasn't enough for him. I wasn't just content to help him get a little bit of treasure to ease his heart, right? Um, in what sense was it not enough for him? Well, not enough for him as the grand strategist, right? He's looking for a way to neutralize Smaug. He's looking for a way to, 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 to counteract the strategy of the enemy. So it's not enough for him that Thorin should be made a little bit happier by having some of his old treasure uh, to, uh, to, to, to sort of brood over. Um, but he, when he, Gandalf, looks back on it in retrospect, he understands it differently. I knew in my heart that Bilbo must go with him or the whole quest would be a failure. That he knew at the time. Now he knows, in retrospect, why he felt that way, right? As I should say now, the far more important events, by the way, would not come to pass. He... In, in, so in the revised version, we have Gandalf going further here, explicitly looking back and recognizing that this impulse that he had, this, um, this plan, this crazy, nonsensical, hopeless plan to send, uh, uh, even apparently pointless plan, to send Bilbo along with them, um, was for a reason, even though he didn't understand, but now he does understand it. Bilbo had to be along in order to find the ring along the way. But he had no clue about that at the time. right? But again, so we see Gandalf commenting more on the way in which he was being... He and all of them were being maneuvered, were being positioned. Um, similarly, just after this, we've got Thorin being contemptuous and suspicious again. He is soft, he snorted, soft as the mud of his shire in Silly. His mother died too soon. You are playing some crooked game of your own, Master Gandalf. I am sure that you have other purposes than helping me. You are quite right, I said. If I had no other purposes, I should not be helping you at all. Great as your affairs may seem to you, they are only a small strand in the great web. I am concerned with many strands, but that should make my advice more weighty, not less. At last I spoke with great heat. Listen to me, Thorin Oakenshield, I said. If this hobbit goes with you, you will succeed. If not, you will fail. A foresight is on me, and I am warning you. See, this is where Gandalf has to come across and say that to Thorin, right? He lays it on the line for him. But notice also the language, the vocabulary that Gandalf is using here. The, the vocabulary of success and failure. We didn't see that in the B-text. That's new here. The way that Gandalf is now saying that at the time he was thinking in terms of success and failure. In one sense, that doesn't even make any sense. If this hobbit goes with you, you will succeed. In what? Killing the dragon? Maybe. I mean, of course, the quest does succeed in what in one sense, but to some extent, there's a kind of irony in the in the titling of this story, the quest of Erebor, as Tolkien seems to have done in pencil after the fact. Um, uh, on the corner of the page, um, because a quest would seem to have a definite 
purpose, right? When you're on a quest, you're setting out to do something usually pretty particular. You might go out on, a, on an adventure and not know where you're going, right? Um, you know, Arthurian knights often go out on adventures with no particular plan. That's kind of what an adventure means, right? Um, and that's what we get in chapter one of The Published Hobbit. It's an adventure, right? Not a quest, an adventure. Um, if this is a quest... What's their purpose? What exactly is it that is going to succeed or fail? And it's unknown. It's not clear. Killing the dragon, restoring the kingdom, again, those things happen, but they don't seem to be very clearly what they're setting out to do. They certainly, anyway, don't seem to have a really clear plan for doing it. But Gandalf, um, in when he shifts into prophetic mode here, he uses that language. If he goes with you, you will succeed. If not, you will fail. Success will come to you. Again, it's almost, it's not only a statement of faith, it's strengthened from the B text. It's not just a statement of faith on his part. Um, putting it in this prophetic vein by Gandalf, you know, good things will happen to you. Things will turn out well for you if you take him with you. If not, it's going to fail. You're going to end in disaster. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, there I think we can see um, th- then that, that, that seems to me an interesting kind of shift, an interesting kind of shift in emphasis on Gandalf's part um, that he is more overtly again, I, I, it seems that that element, that the element of, of the faith involved by both Gandalf and Thorin seems to be being brought to the surface more here um, we see both of them in the B text acting on faith in the C text, Gandalf explicitly lays it on the line for Thorin are you going to trust me or not? I'm going to tell you right here and now, a foretelling is on me, okay? Are you going to buy what I'm selling you? Are you going to have faith in my prediction and take this hobbit with you just because I tell you you should, or not? And uh, and, you know, and, and we see, of course, that he does do it. So that the way in which we are being instructed to see the setting out on the adventure in Chapter 1 as an act of explicit faith on Thorin's part, and in a different sense on Gandalf's part, is made much more explicit, I think, in the C-text than it was in the B-text. Again, it was clearly there, but it's being brought to the surface a great deal more. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, as you might see, I'm kind of uh, rushing because I still have a bunch of things. Uh, well, there's one other major topic I want to talk about, and I've... I have a little time to at least touch on it if you're willing to be patient and bear with me uh, for another 10 or 15 minutes or so. Um, Because I want to touch on the topic which I think is the most significant shift between the B text and the C text. The one single thing that I think is the most profound change between those two versions of the story. And I am talking about the depiction of Bilbo. That, I think, is really fascinating. Um, Here's the early version. This is when Gandalf is reviewing. He's still in his brainstorming phase. Okay, a hobbit. I guess I could bring a hobbit along with us. There's some hint. I've got a hint of a plan, right? But there's some element that I don't see yet. Okay, hobbit, right? So this is him working this out and explaining why it is that he elects Bilbo. How would you select any one hobbit for such a purpose, said Gandalf. 
I had not time to sort them all out, but I knew the Shire very well by that time, although when I met Thorin I had been away for more than twenty years on less pleasant business. So naturally, thinking over the hobbits that I knew, I said to myself, I want a dash of the took, but not too much, Master Peregrine, and I want a good foundation of the stolider sort, a Baggins, perhaps. That pointed at once to Bilbo. And I had known him once very well, almost up to his coming of age, better than he knew me. I liked him then. And now I found that he was unattached. To jump on again, uh, to jump on again, for of course I did not know all this until I went back to the Shire. Uh, I learned that he had never married. I thought that odd, though I guessed why it was, and the reason that I guessed was not the one that most of the hobbits gave me, that he had early been left well off and his own master. No, I guessed that he wanted to remain unattached for some reason deep down which he did not understand himself, or would not acknowledge, for it alarmed him. He wanted all the same to be free to go when the chance came, or or he had made up his courage." I remembered how he used to pester me with questions when he was a youngster about the hobbits that had occasionally gone off, as they said in the Shire. There were at least two of his uncles on the Took side that had done so. Okay, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of quick things here. First, notice how he um, notice how he characterizes Bilbo here. Bilbo is not like a super adventurer in training. He's certainly not a professional thief. He's not a super adventurer in training. Um, he is... He has the makeup that Gandalf thinks is good. The whole Took Baggins mix. Uh, 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 Gandalf thinks of a very advantageous one. But I, the way that I would characterize this, especially in the context of this story, how we see Gandalf operating, how we see Thorin operating in in response to Gandalf, Um, the key thing seems to be Bilbo has some kind of calling upon him, even though he himself doesn't understand it. Um, Gandalf seems to recognize that, that he's heard that Bilbo is still unattached, and it's apparently unusual, we're told in the Fellowship of the Ring, we're, we're told in the, in the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring, that Frodo and Bilbo's status as bachelors was very exceptional. It's very unusual for hobbits to remain bachelors as those two were. Gandalf, again, remembering that passage and thinking back on that, now giving us some further commentary on Bilbo's unusual bachelor status. This said something to Gandalf, and what does it say to him? It says he wants to be unattached. Um, After marrying Rose, Sam couldn't go on the journey, right? Bilbo could not have gone on this journey had he been married. Um, He needs... He he wants to um, remain unattached, but he doesn't understand why. So Bilbo, again, it's not that he is a super adventurer already, but... Gandalf interprets his bachelor status as some kind of sense that Bilbo has an unconscious sense of calling. Um, That it is evidence, in short, that Bilbo is meant to go on this journey. And that seems to be the way Gandalf rolls in the B-text, right? Is sort of picking up on these hints. Um, uh, that this is sort of the purpose that uh, that he has been kind of saving himself for, though he himself doesn't even really recognize it. The other thing that he points to, the most 
the, the most promising, adventurous thing about Bilbo is that he is curious about his about the adventures that these others have gone on. And now here I think it's clear that Tolkien is again thinking of particular passages in the published works where he makes, you know, this passage makes an explicit reference back to the published Hobbit to remind you of it. Um, This is Bilbo hearing who, you know, Gandalf has just told him his name in chapter one. Not the man that used to make such particularly excellent fireworks. I remember those. Old Took used to have them on Midsummer's Eve. Splendid! They used to go up like great lilies and snapdragons and laburnums of fire and hang in the twilight all evening. You will notice already that Mr. Baggins was not quite so prosy as he liked to believe, also that he was very fond of flowers. Dear me, he went on, not that Gandalf, who was responsible for so many quiet lads and lasses, going off into the blue for mad adventures, anything from climbing trees to visiting elves, or sailing in ships, sailing to other shores. Bless me, life used to be quite inter... I mean, you used to upset things badly in these parts once upon a time. I beg your pardon, I had no idea you were still in business. Gandalf, here, in the B-text of the Quest of Erebor, is referring to that brief lapse in chapter one of The Hobbit. Life used to be quite inter... I mean, you used to upset things badly in these parts, right? Bilbo did used to be curious about his uncles who went off into the blue for mad adventures, right? He used to have, therefore, some, some curiosity about climbing trees, visiting elves, sailing in ships. Maybe he'll someday do all of those things. Um, but again, it's it's... It's, it's, he's been repressing it, right? If he was interested, it's not really a conscious interest, and he's distancing himself from that interest. That's what we can see in Bilbo here in chapter one. So again, Tolkien is remembering that. He's looking, he's working very closely with the published text of his own book, and so here's Gandalf saying, it was that. All of those questions he had about his uncles, the fact that he was obviously interested in this, even though he doesn't, um, even though he doesn't really want to admit it to himself, shows that he's a good candidate. And the the and the 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 you know the the ribbon on the present there is just is his bachelor status it shows confirms that I was right that that I am right to think of him that that he's my guy even though he doesn't seem like it because not only was he curious but also he seems to have some. Um, some ill-understood calling upon himself. He seems to be to know to understand on some deeply subconscious level that he was meant to do this. Now, see text version. Somehow I had been attracted by Bilbo long before as a child and a young hobbit. He had not quite come of age when I had last seen him. He had stayed in my mind ever since with his eagerness and his bright eyes and his love of tales and his questions about the wide world outside the Shire. That all sounds quite similar to what we got in the B-text. As soon as I entered the Shire, I heard news of him. Now, the, one of the big plot differences is that in the C-text, Gandalf does go to the Shire to find Bilbo before telling Thorin the plan in the Blue Mountains. In the B-text, he doesn't do that. He doesn't even look Bilbo up before he brings the dwarves there. Here, he does look him up. And in looking him, he does some field research into Bilbo before suggesting this mad plan to Thorin, uh, the, the exiled dwarf king. Um, and this is what he discovers. He was getting talked about, it seemed. Both his parents had died early for Shire folk at about 80, and he, he had never married. He was already growing a bit queer, they said, and went off for days by himself. 
he could be seen talking to strangers, even dwarfs. Okay. Um, so we get all, all, we we see there all of the elements that we got in the B text: his curiosity about Gandalf's tales and what Gandalf uh, Gandalf's earlier adventures, his um, his never marrying. But now we get this bit about how he's already growing a bit queer, and he's already going off like he in fact is already a kind of a proto adventurer. And then he gets to Hobbiton. They shook their heads in Hobbiton when I asked after him. Off again, said one Hobbit. It was Holman the gardener, I believe. Off again. He'll go right off one of these days, if he isn't careful. Why, I asked him where he was going and when he would be back, and I don't know, he says, and then he looks at me queerly. It depends if I meet any, Holman, he says. It's the elves' new year tomorrow. A pity in him so kind a body. You wouldn't find a better from the downs to the river. So Holman queerly thinks he's mad. Um... Roy says, a foretelling is upon Holman. Yes, it is! Now, Holman is not knowingly foretelling the future, but I, I, I take it that Gandalf basically interpreted his words in that way. right? Gandalf's response is better and better, right? Um, but yes, I think that the C-text Gandalf is quoting Holman uh, in order to point out the dramatic irony of his words, right? The old, old Holman has no idea um, of, uh, of, of, of what's going on or of the significance of his own words. But we do, right? We can hear the fact that he is unknowingly <laughs> uttering prophecy. Um, uh, anyway. Um, so, Bilbo is already going off on his own, and he's going off to see if he can see elves. Now, it's not that this is totally unconnected with the Hobbit text as we see it. Bilbo clearly in the Hobbit has some experience with elves, or else he wouldn't know what they smell like, right? He comes to the edge of Rivendell and says, hmm, it smells like elves. How would he know that if he'd never met an elf? So, um, uh, you know, it's um, it's not, you know, it's not totally disconnected from uh, the Hobbit story that we get. And yet, the C-text version of Bilbo, the way in which uh, this, you know, Bilbo's qualifications as an adventurer are being greatly increased from the B-text. I mean, I think this change is, is as I said, I think it's the biggest change that we get between these two texts. Um, and um, it's, it's really playing up his took side. He's already getting a bit queer. Look back at, uh, again, this is another flashback to the published Hobbit. This is paragraph three. This Hobbit was a very well-to-do Hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected, like go off to visit elves, for instance. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure, and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained... Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. Um, in the revised C-text version of the Quest of Erebor, Tolkien has gone much further. This seems to be not just a place where he's recontextualizing the Hobbit story, but altering it. Um, the Hobbit... This is... This is I, would, I, This is a contradiction 
between The Hobbit and The Quest of Erebor, one of the few. Um, but Bilbo was known for his boringness and predictability. Um, and he doesn't lose the neighbor's respect until he goes on his adventure. Um, the idea that Bilbo had already been losing the neighbor's respect, um, it makes Gandalf's choice more intuitive, right? Um, Gandalf latching upon, even though he doesn't talk to Bilbo himself and thus can't directly prepare Bilbo, does make the, his whole mad plan more sensible from the beginning. Bilbo is clear, I mean, obviously this guy is ready, right? He is ready for this trip. Um, which is different from Bilbo in chapter one. Um, so we have this story pushing Bilbo's character in a, in a genuinely um, uh, in a genuinely unhobbitish direction. Now, it's not that that's not okay, right? Um, as Tom says, Bilbo wrote The Hobbit, mostly, and so this bit about the Bagginses is from his perspective. Exactly. Um, his memory says that he... All of his neighbors thought he was totally predictable until he went on his adventure. You can easily explain it away. Again, it's not like this contradiction is a problem in this, right? It's exactly how it would be explained in the looking along uh, uh, look at it, right? Um, that is to say, Gandalf tells us what was really going on. Bilbo's version there in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, you know, he liked to think of himself that way, but that wasn't, in fact, the way that it was. Everybody already thought he was queer before he before he knew this. And, um, and uh, Tom, I love your comment about how uh, gardeners are the source of all wisdom in the Shire. Of course his gardener had a foretelling upon him. Who would you expect uh, to get wisdom and prophecy from in the garden, in, in the Shire, if not from a gardener? Um... So anyway, again, I'm not so in saying that this is a contradiction. I'm not. I'm not. You know, attempting to uh, to sort of criticize this and say that Tolkien is doing a bad job, but just that he's doing a different thing. You know, this story is doing a different thing with Bilbo's character. It's asking us to envision the relationship between Gandalf's telling and Bilbo's earlier telling in the, the published Hobbit as having a different relationship with each other than they do in the B version, and I think that that's interesting. Um. Uh, um. Good. Uh, one last comment, and then I will let you go. Um, one other issue that the sort of exaggeration, or, or let me say the the amplification of Bilbo's tookishness and his adventure readiness, the other issue that this has for the Quest of Erebor story is the disappointment of Bilbo's debut. So I rode off back to Horan in... Th- Thorin in haste to tackle the difficult task of persuading him to put aside his lofty designs and go secretly and take Bilbo with him. Without seeing Bilbo first, it was a mistake and nearly proved disastrous, for Bilbo had changed, of course. At least he was getting rather greedy and fat, and his old desires had dwindled down to a sort of private dream. Nothing could have been more dismaying than to find it actually in danger of coming true. He was altogether bewildered and made a complete fool of himself." This seems to be an admission on Gandalf's part that he had misinterpreted things. He remembered things about Bilbo from Bilbo's childhood. How promising he was! How promising were all of that? Were all those in, the, his interest in all of my old stories and things? And then he hears this stuff from Holman, the gardener, about how queer he is getting and what other people are thinking of him. And so he's so that leads Gandalf to create a mental picture 
of Bilbo as the sort of ripening proto-adventurer, right? And then he discovers, eh, actually, not so much. Um, uh, the Apparently, the local definition of queer is not quite up to Gandalf's standards, right? Bilbo, he, he finds Bilbo disappointingly less queer than he was hoping to find him. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so that's clearly uh, uh, sort of, I think, a, a comical moment here. In so, we, we can see the shift that's going on between the B text and the C text here. In the B text, Gandalf is not anticipating that he's a proto-adventurer. Gandalf is thinking he's meant to go, um, but in his, ex- you know, in in that sort of weird moment where he's telling the dwarves, "You've got to anticipate that he's not going to want to go, and don't let him back out." Gandalf knows he's anticipating the incipient disaster at Bag End already. Here the disaster is taking Gandalf by surprise. So when we look at the sort of... when we compare the two of them, we can see, of course, the differences in the way that Bilbo's character is being described, but we can also see the significance that it has for Gandalf's character. Uh, And interestingly, in the revision, Gandalf's character makes an error, right? He... he, he, uh, what the, the disaster at Bag End is his fault, because he makes a mistake and he misinterpreted things. Um, and I think that that's, uh, um, that's a really fascinating move with Gandalf looking back on himself and thinking about things in that way. Anyway, i got to let you go. You guys have been more than patient. Um, there's more that we could say uh, about these things, but I find this project that Tolkien undertakes, this kind of project, the way in which he will write something like this, which will not alter what came before, but alter our perceptions of what came before, which will not diminish but enrich the earlier stories by placing them in this new context and giving um, giving them a new depth behind their surface which didn't exist uh, in the first place. This is one of the things which is just so fascinating to look at in these... Uh, in, in the, I, in especially in the sort of the second half of Unfinished Tales, um, some of the ways in which he's doing this. And I think the quest of Erebor is um, sort of the most emphatic um, uh, example of this kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I will let you go. Uh, let me just uh, uh, remind you again, as I mentioned at the beginning of class, um, Friday morning, 10 o'clock, Riddles in the Dark, we're going to be talking about elves. We're going to be looking at the depiction of the elves, thinking about Thranduil and his alliance with Thorin uh, and the tragic misfiring of that. Uh, we will uh, we'll be, we'll be moving on to consider that in some detail uh, and uh, the uh, implications of that for Jackson's adaptation in Film 3 uh, on Friday. So, um, uh, so I hope to see you Uh, to see many of you then, and in any case, I will see you guys, remember, not next Tuesday, but next Friday night um, for uh, The Hunt for the Ring. So, thanks very much, everybody, for joining me and for bearing with me for a long class tonight, uh, and I will see you guys late next week. Bye now!